Hey everyone, and welcome to the first episode ever of the Climate Ready Podcast. I'm Alex Maroner. And I'm Erin Gooch. We're here to bring you stories and perspectives on the latest trends related to climate change adaptation, with a special focus on how climate change is impacting our freshwater resources. Our goal is to keep you informed, intrigued, and engaged when it comes to climate adaptation. We'll feature interviews and discussions with policymakers, scientists, engineers, communicators, and anyone with a unique story to tell about climate adaptation. You can find the Climate Ready podcast on iTunes, or check us out on the web at www.aguaguide.org podcast. That's A-G-W-A guide.org podcast. Follow us on your favorite social media using hashtag climate ready. Please stick around until the end to hear more about what's going on with the podcast. We thought we'd start with a quick background so that you, the listeners, can get to know us, the hosts. My name is Alex Maroner, and I'm coming to you from Northwest Arkansas in the United States. I'm an environmental scientist by training, but I've been studying and working in the field of climate adaptation since 2012. I'm really honored, inspired, and motivated to be working in this arena addressing what I see as the most pressing issue of our time in climate change. And how about a little of your story, Erin? I'm Erin, joining you from Oregon. I have a background in environmental science and water resources with a focus on policy and planning. I've worked as a regulator, a planner for public agencies, and as a consultant in the engineering world. I've learned about climate adaptation and water resources from many angles. I'm excited to be talking about these important issues and this awesome task of climate adaptation that we, the global community, have in front of us. We both work for an organization called AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It's an international network focused on advancing climate adaptation, science, and policy by using water as a connecting theme. Our goal is to highlight and share really interesting stories and perspectives about people and groups taking climate adaptation action. Which brings us to today, our first ever Climate Ready podcast. In this episode, we'll be joined by Doug Parsons, host of America Adapts, a podcast that covers how society is adapting to a changing climate. We will focus on the communication side of climate adaptation. How do we as scientists and experts step out of our disciplines to have frank, practical discussions about climate adaptation? How do we reach a diverse audience with differing values, beliefs, and levels of understanding around climate change and adaptation? And how do we move forward in what's still an evolving science, even when we don't have all the answers? Stick around to find out. Today we have an exciting guest, Doug Parsons, host of America Adapts, the climate change podcast. If you haven't heard his podcast yet, definitely check it out. It's a great resource to learn about climate change and adaptation and to hear from a wide range of professionals and activists working on all sorts of adaptation projects and issues. Hi, Doug. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, Alex and Aaron, and congratulations on starting your podcast. Welcome to the podcast universe. Thanks for joining us today, Doug. I thought we'd start by getting to know a little bit more about your story. You initially began your career focused on ecology and conservation efforts, working professionally in this field for Fish and Wildlife Commissions and the National Park Service here in the U.S. After all that experience, what made you decide to develop a podcast focused on climate adaptation of all things? Well, part of it was just out of, I, I was working for the Society for Conservation Biology as their policy director and as a small conservation group, funding ran out through my grant. And so I was actually looking for work and just to keep my mind sharp, I'm like, well, I was thinking about doing a podcast at SCB. And so I started it just as I was looking for work and I just, dedicated myself. I'm going to do this on a weekly basis. This is just something to keep my mind sharp on adaptation. And probably after three, four, five months, and as the listener base grew, and I started looking at models of like, 
can I do this full time? Is the picture, and I'm still figuring out that model uh, <laughs> myself. But uh, probably in the last three or four months, I'm, I'm getting sponsored to go on location, and so it turned into sort of a hobby to keep my mind sharp to something that I, I'm hoping to do full time indefinitely. And yeah, it it wasn't like I had this all mapped out when I started it. So. You cover a wide range of topics in your podcast. You bring voices and perspectives from experts in a lot of different fields related to climate change adaptation. But overall, climate adaptation is still a relatively new and emerging discipline. Most of it's really cutting-edge stuff. Climate change manifests itself in so many different ways, so we were wondering, in your work as a communicator on climate change and climate change adaptation, how do you usually define these topics? Well, so do you mean just define the whole field of adaptation or just like kind of a subset of what I'm trying to do with adaptation? What do you mean? I'd say if you run into someone on the street and you say, I, I do a podcast on climate adaptation, they say, what's that? You know, maybe do you have a, a 20, 30 second uh, sentence or two definition? Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I've been working on this for years. And I, I think that's partly the inspiration of me starting the podcast is I've been trying to find that perfect adaptation elevator speech in some previous positions when that was at the National Park Service and Society for Conservation Biology. I would go around and have these conversations. What is that 30 second elevator speech? And people I would put people on the spot to do it. And people had some good ones, but I never found one that was completely satisfying. And I don't think I discovered one myself. And so this is partly a journey to kind of fill in the gaps of what really would be a good adaptation elevator speech. And, you know, the point of the podcast is you want something that, you know, hopefully a lot of people are going to listen to. So you got to distill the science in a way that is understandable. And so I guess to answer your question, I still haven't figured out exactly what I mean by adaptation. And this podcast is a bit of a journey to, to fill in those gaps. So within, within your, your listener base, do you think that adaptation is something that these people understand intuitively or they, they already have a, a baseline understanding or, or maybe they're even resistant to some of the ideas you're talking about? Oh, I think some are resistant. And occasionally we talk about people, you know, there's two sides to climate change. There's mitigation and that's all the carbon emission side. And then there's adaptation. And so my, my Thunderdome is the adaptation world. And I think a lot of people have really no clue what it is. And so that's why they listen in. And that I think why it's a more popular thing to talk about than mitigation. Mitigation is like, okay, we've got this challenge and we have to reduce our emissions. I, some people accuse the adaptation folks of like, well, you've just thrown in the towel and now we have to adapt. It's like, no, <laughs> we have to mitigate carbon emissions or you won't be able to adapt to anything. But that is not our area of expertise. And so no matter what you do on the mitigation side, there's going to be some adaptation needed. And that's what we're exploring. And I think people like gravitate toward the adaptation argument is because you're, it's a proactive action you could take now that isn't sort of the, oh, go change your light bulbs or here's what you can't do anymore versus like, you know, Marshall plan and let's step up and respond to this challenge through adapting to it. And I think it's, I guess I'm luckier in that it lends itself to a more of a, a not that there's nothing noble about mitigating carbon, but it's just, I think people, they can appreciate and relate more to the steps that adaptation involved, if that makes sense. 
resilience has a key place in adaptation planning, but adaptation planning is the umbrella notion of what we're doing here, whereas resilience is a tactic underneath adaptation. Well, yes, maybe here's a natural system that if we take these steps, if we remove the invasive species, or if we do this, we can prolong this ecosystem indefinitely. And so that's resilience planning, and I think that's a good thing. And it's just, I think, all sorts of the planning tools, vulnerability assessments, are going to give us a little bit more knowledge on what are the systems that are worth trying to protect indefinitely and then others that, okay, what can we do to help them transition? Just now you brought up the concept of resilience. That's something we plan on exploring throughout each episode of this podcast series. You describe it as a tactic under the adaptation umbrella. Resilience is an important concept in the climate community. It's also a somewhat contentious concept in the climate community. What do you see as some of the benefits and the pitfalls of emphasizing climate resilience? The notion of re resilience, as you said, the definite, there's, everybody has a different definition and that's a problem, but like the federal government took the approach of resilience and the idea is that we can climate proof everything, that we can just like cities and everything, we can just climate proof it and we can protect it if we invest the right funds. Whereas adaptation is a term that lends itself to like, well, no, some areas we're going to have to let go. Coastal Florida, these are going to transition into new ecosystems or be immersed completely it's going to be a transition. And whereas resilience, there's this notion of, okay, if we took these steps that we can protect it all. And I'm sure some people listening to this are going to be, well, no, that's not what I mean by resilience. Well, that's what some people mean. And so that's the problem. And I didn't like the fact that everyone thought, you know, we could just do status quo indefinitely. The changes that are coming are much bigger than that. And if you, if you fool people into thinking that we can just climate proof society, you're not preparing the right way. And I think that's actually dangerous. And that's why I make such a big deal of it. So I'm using my platform and I brought guests on that are experts that I don't want to say agree with me, but we have, I think, rich conversations on why that's problematic. Doug, you've held a variety of positions in the realm of climate change during your career, and you've worked on the issue from many different perspectives, such as conservation and agriculture. Have you noticed in your work that there's a common issue of concern that comes up for people or communities, regardless of the audience? that you're talking to or the sector within which you're working? One issue, hmm. Well, I think the one of the problematic issues for everyone, and I think that's where everyone is sort of not taking the leap like they should, is the issue of uncertainty. You know, what? what is the, can anyone truly predict the future? And that's where everyone sort of, even people in, you know, maybe the agricultural sector, they're just like, what, you're telling? I hate that argument. It's like, I, you can't even tell me what the weather is going to be like next Monday, but you're telling me I've got to make all these major changes because of what you're predicting 30 years from now. And so uncertainty, be it natural resources, how are wildlife species going to migrate due to warming temperatures and then agriculture and how do you change that industry? And then I'm getting more involved in the built environment. I'm, I'm going to go cover a conference, the landscape architect conference. I'm looking forward to having that conference, sort of like what I did with Uganda. There's a conference coming up and uh, how does the built environment sort of make plans? And, you know, they're just dealing with different issues. And so sea level rise, drought, heat, the, it's like everyone's kind of dealing with a different struggle. And so the responses are going to be a bit different. So, Doug, you've been producing the America Adapts podcast for a little over a year now. You've talked about climate adaptation with many different people of diverse professional and personal backgrounds from all around the globe. Is there one story that sticks out to you that really captures the human face of climate adaptation? Ooh, good question. 
I will never say what my favorite episode is, but you know, there'd be those moments where they were just really interesting to me and it was a great story. And I had Britt Basil on, and I don't know if you guys listened to that episode. That was pretty early. That was probably in the first two or three months. And she just does adaptation planning all over the world. And she was telling me, and she gets to go to these cool places like Solomon Islands and she does adaptation planning there. And she was telling me how she was leading an adaptation planning workshop in this tiny little island. It wasn't the Solomons, but just in the area, the South Pacific and some of those islands near Indonesia. And these indigenous populations where she had to just take a sailboat out and go in the middle of nowhere. And in one workshop, they had to break apart the the groups into men and women. And so she did an adaptation workshop with just the women. And then she did an adaptation workshop with just the men because the way the culture worked is you're not going to have that dynamic with the men and the women together. And I, at first I thought, oh, okay, another culture that's just kind of putting women in their place. But then when they were done, they, they all came together and they actually did some steps because most of the, what they were dealing with was sea level rise. It was a Pacific island. And so the community and the men and the women came together and they were responding and they took action. And so that really, I guess, if it's answering your question, resonated with me of like the complexities of adaptation planning, how these different cultures around the world are going to have to deal with it. And, you know, they ultimately... I don't know if they're going to solve the problem of sea level rise. And I think all they're doing is like they're putting the, you know, they're not going to stop sea level rise, but they're creating a, a planning that hopefully will prolong their ability to do what they do on that island, at least for the foreseeable future. And so, yeah, I guess that one stood out. But I encourage your listeners to go and check out all the episodes. <laughs> when you were in Africa at the Community Based Adaptation Conference, there were folks from all over the world. Were there any issues or challenges that were unique or maybe they expressed language or cultural barriers? Well, so this conference, the CBA, Community-Based Adaptation, is the name of the conference. And this was the CBA 11, the 11th version. And so when I was, I think it came out of one of the conversations is that, it, you know, African countries and Asian countries and then a lot of the aid uh, groups are coming from Europe and the U.S. And English is everyone speaking in English there. And so that was a problem. And they, someone noted that people from South America really aren't participating in CBA, which they should be. But when you have a barrier like English, that is a barrier to adaptation. It's just a language barrier because think of all the resources that are being developed in you know Europe and the U.S., like vulnerability assessments. And these are technical tools. And if they aren't being translated into languages and to sort of a format, that these countries can use, then, you know, it's going to be a really lost opportunity. These, these groups are going to play, I mean, that's just how it is almost for everything, but decades to kind of catch up. And so that was one thing. And another thing was just financing. I think CBA and those sort of groups struggle to kind of justify what they're doing to the large donors. It's just a constant sort of, you know, what we're doing here is important. And I tried to make the point too, and I, I think that's true here in the U.S., is that I don't think anyone has adaptation figured out. Like you go around the U.S. and say, oh, they're doing some adaptation planning. They do, they're they doing shovel-ready adaptation. Maybe some groups are doing the right thing, but people are still figuring it out. And to go to a country like Mozambique or Tanzania and say, okay, you're not spending our aid dollars properly on this adaptation planning, that's just ridiculous. This adaptation is going to be a generational long learning experience. And I hope and, – and a lot of the aid – groups that were there. They were there for ongoing support. I hope they realize this long game. There's a lot of gaps in the knowledge because 
you think about just the planning process, people, it's hard enough to get something done when you know what's going on today, but okay, plan for something 50 years from now. It gets complicated very quickly. And the developing countries are in a hole in respect. They have to just justify everything the right way. Yeah, I, I don't envy them. When it comes to climate change, would you say that you're an optimist or a pessimist or somewhere in between? Deep breath. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> As people in my universe like to joke, it, like when you're with civilians, you never want to hang out with us at a cocktail hour because, you know, <laughs> you talk about the end of the planet as we know it. Uh, I, when it comes to the podcast, it, I think uh, hopefully it's come out. I, I seem like an optimist. I think people appreciate my perspective, my voice, and in the whole notion of here, we're doing something. We're being very proactive and I, we're going to stand up to climate change. And I, that's, and it's not some fake persona. That's my that's my personality for the podcast. But you know, I'm also in life very pessimistic about things. And you know, there's a story I tell, and you, you maybe you've heard it before in the podcast. But when I was in Australia, when I really started getting into climate change issues, I saw a climate change presentation by an Australian climatologist. And it was one of the first, this was like 2003, 2004. And, you know, he laid out a lot of the science out there. And I'm going, holy crap, this is, wait a second, what is this issue all about here? And I went up to him afterwards and I'm like, that was really sobering. And he just kind of looked at me, really nice guy, unassuming. He wasn't like an alarmist at all. It was just a matter of fact. He's like, oh, that was the happy version. And I'm like, what? And he just kind of went into detail. He's just like, yeah, you get climatologists talking and, you know, that's a, a growing number of them. And this was in 2003, 2004. He, he was like uh, a growing number of them think that humanity will be living in small population near the poles by the end of the century. And I'm like, what? And you're holding on to this information. And he said he didn't believe that, but he was trying to make a point. It's just like the notion that climate scientists are alarmists. You know, the, the conservatives are out there sort of all oh, look at them. They're all. And it's just like, Scientists by nature are very conservative on how they message, and they have no idea what those climatologists really think. And they've done a really, I think, I don't know if it's a good job, but they've been so measured in how they share this incredibly uh, urgent issue. And so I guess back to your question, I'm an optimist on a daily basis, and I guess I'm sort of pessimistic about the future. And I've got children, and you know, you keep on, hey, I'm I want them to go to college and assuming that things will still be there for them. It's a complicated story, that climate change, isn't it? We wanted to take a moment to reflect back on an earlier topic that came up. What does it really mean for a system to be resilient? Doug stated that resilience is merely a tool under the climate adaptation umbrella. Resilience is not a new term, but it's becoming more and more utilized in climate policy and dialogue. What does it mean exactly? As you've heard, it can often depend on who you ask. One definition I like comes from the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative. They state, resilience is the capacity of individuals, communities, and systems to survive, adapt, and grow in the face of stress and shocks, and to even transform in the face of it. Resiliency to us, specifically in the context of climate resilience, is comprised of two key components robustness and flexibility. For robustness, can we span multiple credible futures with limited data? For flexibility, how do we cope with unexpected rates and types of change? 
These are crucial questions when we're designing for uncertain futures with the goal of resiliency. Resilience is not a one-dimensional concept either. When it comes to climate and water, resilience ties into a number of systems, such as governance and strategy, health and well-being, economy and society, and infrastructure and ecosystems. We say all that to get to this point. Resiliency is an important but intricate and sometimes even convoluted concept when it comes to climate adaptation. Resiliency is a goal. It's a design objective that helps to provide direction in order to find innovative ways to identify, manage, and mitigate climate risk. We continue to strive for resilient ecosystems and societies even in the face of uncertainty. With this goal in mind, we'll continue to work towards robust and flexible systems that perform well over a wide range of possible futures. Alex, I thought Doug brought up some really good points, which I suspect will be themes throughout future episodes. The challenges of communicating such a complex and nuanced topic as climate change, the need for both mitigation and proactive adaptation efforts, and identifying some of the biggest hurdles we face in adaptation, including uncertainty, financing, and even language barriers. In future episodes, we'll dive more in depth into each of these topics and hopefully learn a little bit along the way. We'd like to thank our guest today, Doug Parsons, for joining us in our inaugural episode. As a reminder, you can find his podcast, America Adapts, the Climate Change Podcast, every week on iTunes, or you can check out his website at americaadapts.org podcast. Well, thanks to all of you for listening in to the inaugural episode of the Climate Ready Podcast. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.aguaguide.org podcast. That's A-G-W-A guide.org podcast. From there, you can find out all sorts of information and resources related to climate adaptation and decision-making under uncertainty, as well as future episodes of the Climate Ready Podcast. Do you want to learn more about a specific topic related to climate change adaptation? Is there a burning question that you'd like to have answered? We'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Send us your questions and we'll feature them in our upcoming guest interviews. Visit aguaguide.org podcast to submit your questions, comments, or feedback. The Climate Ready Podcast is made possible by funding from the World Bank Group. For more on the World Bank and its role in supporting climate adaptation efforts, visit www.worldbank.org.